0: is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code LINDSAY, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Hello, everyone. Today, I'll be talking with Alexandra Stevenson. Alexandra, a former trafficking victim turned activist, embarked on her anti-trafficking journey at 11. After 10 years and personal hardships, she recognized her experience as human trafficking. With a candid storytelling approach and strong academic background, she bridges communities, educates on tough subjects and empowers change. She co-founded Uprising in Wyoming and her personal brand, The Laughing Survivor in British Columbia. Alexandra's strength and resilience inspires others to persevere and foster compassion. Alexandra is currently working on a book and will be done soon. I hope to have her back on this podcast to continue our conversation once it's released. Today's episode is about human trafficking and sexual assault. Please take care when you listen to this, if you have children nearby, Alexandra will share her personal story about grooming, sexual assault, and trafficking. Her story is incredibly powerful, and I'm so glad that she is here with us today to share it. We will discuss how we can talk to our children about consent and what that looks like, what trafficking really is, and so much more. Let's dive in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode, this podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All right. Good morning, everybody. Today on the show, we have Alexandra Stevenson. Welcome. Hi. I would love, I don't want you to talk forever, but I do want you to tell us just as much as you can about your story and why you came to talk about and be really passionate about the topics that you talk about now which is sexual empowerment you compare a lot of sexual empowerment with sexual exploitation you talk a lot about human trafficking and i just would love for you to start out with what brought you here
1: absolutely i'll try and give kind of the high level overview the points so everyone understands like who i am and why i'm talking to them about this subject Um, And how, like you said, how I came to be really passionate about it. So I was born and raised in a, quote unquote, like super normal family, mom, dad together, older brother. I actually have an older half brother as well, but I wasn't raised with him because he's quite a bit older than me. Um, We were raised in middle class suburbia. My childhood was idyllic by all stretches of the imagination. You know, My brother and I got to indulge in different sports and activities as we really kind of tried to figure out what we were good at and who we were as people throughout our adolescence. And I jumped all around, found out that I'm not sporty. (laughs) I am kind of creative, but not really. I didn't love musical instruments. But where I did find my niche early on was actually advocacy. And that was about age 11 or 12. I became an advocate against child labor and child exploitation that happened overseas. So we're talking sweatshops and brothels in, in India Nicaragua, and Nicaragua and all these places. And so at 11 or 12 years old, I... You know, was skipping school dances to door knock to collect signatures for a petition to send to our prime minister. Here, I'm from Canada, so our prime minister. And I'm pretty sure, you know, I didn't ask them, but I'm pretty sure my parents were probably patting themselves on the back, being like, "Yes, we have, you know, the golden child. We have raised mm-hmm. the perfect child who doesn't do anything wrong, and and is an advocate. And look at her; she's speaking before uh, student council and and all of these things. So I was doing really, really well. And then. A couple years later, my best friend's uncle started grooming me and actually began sexually assaulting me about the age of 13 or 14. And that really changed my life trajectory completely. So over the next, I would say about five years, those sexual assaults continued with a decent amount of regularity. And I slipped away from my advocacy work and started slipping into doing drugs. Now, what's really important, I think, for parents to know is that this isn't a movie. There wasn't a montage where, you know, I suddenly went from being the nerdy little kid wearing glasses and braces to, you know, wearing a whole bunch of black eyeliner and Mm -hmm. clothes and all of this. There wasn't this sudden like, oh my God, we know something's wrong with her. Mm. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I didn't register really that what was happening to me was abuse. As a, as a young teenager, as an adolescent, You know, being an advocate didn't exactly endear me to my peers. I was not a cool kid. I was bullied. I was absolutely desperate for love. So when a 30 something good looking man showed interest in me, I thought, wow, I must be really special. He must see something special in me. I must be worldly and mature, unlike those other silly 13 year olds. And though I knew to some degree it was not okay because I kept it secret, it was sort of a special little secret that I had. The problem is, I think your my body knew it was not okay. And so while I kept telling myself, Oh, this is special, I'm special. I also started doing drugs, I started smoking weed doing mushrooms was introduced to ketamine, ecstasy, uh, cocaine, and then really kind of landed on meth. So by about 19 years old, I had graduated high school with pretty good marks and rather than go off to college, I had gotten a full-time job uh, first in the bar industry and then at a tanning salon and i by day i was I really looked like I was doing well. I was managing mm-hmm. a couple tanning salons, but by night, I was partying a lot mm-hmm. It wasn't long it was it was you know early two thousand and seven when the town meth dealer walked into my tanning salon. I knew who he was. Uh, he had heard of me and he showed interest in me and I showed interest back for a lot of reasons. Was just not thrilled with doing life the way it was supposed to be done. I had experienced at this point, we had report, when I say we, I'd found out that I was not in fact special and the man who sexually assaulted me had actually sexually assaulted some of my friends as well. We had reported to the police and now we were entrenched in this investigation and Mm. and court case and it, it was horrible. I could no longer convince myself that it was maybe a clandestine relationship or that I was special. I wasn't special. This Mm -hmm. was abuse. And reporting it to the police was brutal. And the questions and the investigation Mm -hmm. and the years of waiting for the court case and everything, you know, was brutal in a way that the abuse hadn't been to me. Mm -hmm. And I Because you viewed it differently. Yeah. It was like almost like you didn't the way
0: that you're well, you were a child, right? And so it's almost like your you're just telling yourself this story of this person loves me and you know like this image of what it might be and then when you realize it wasn't that at all it's like you have to unpack it all and go through it all again but in a way that you had told yourself from you know age 13 or 14 that it was something totally different so it's like you have to relive that whole entire thing over again looking at it from a different lens
1: absolutely yeah and i had been taught as many of us had that sexual assault Looked like someone in a dark alley jumping you. It looked like screaming no and fighting someone off. It was no means no culture. And I hadn't said no. I had maybe pushed him away. I had said, is this right? I had said, what about, you know, insert adult's name here? I I had not necessarily been comfortable with it, but he was... My uncle, he was in a position of power, and he told me it was okay, so okay, it was okay and now I'm being told by everyone it was absolutely not okay, and I had been abused for the last five years, and in my own brain, I was too dumb enough to figure that out, so mm. yeah i had to I had to reprocess all of this, and it it was it sent me off the deep end
0: and before you go on into this other this other part of the story i wanted to just mention too i i you know your story is significant for people listening because it is that is the image that everybody has where it's like oh you know someone walking down a street at night getting jumped right like that's what you think about when you think about sexual assault but so often the majority of the time it is somebody you know somebody you closely know even it's somebody that can see you on a daily basis to Like you said, groom you, which I want to get to after your story's done, but I do want to talk a lot more about that. But those are the people that are able to do this because they're able to literally mold you into something where, like you said, you never said no because you felt like, oh, well, I'm the child and this is the adult. Like, I guess this is okay. Like, you know, like you felt like maybe something was wrong, but never said, you know what I mean? It's, and it's just so crazy because people are looking to the outside so often when they're not looking closer in. Yeah. It's, it's really, I mean, and you hear these stories and it's heartbreaking because it's like, you know, somebody you really trusted in somebody. And in your case, this was your uncle you said, or your friend's uncle, my friend's uncle, your friend's uncle.
1: Yeah. So it's just anyways. Okay. So you keep going yeah and definitely well, let's talk more about grooming uh, in a little bit because that's that's a huge yeah. topic that yeah. needs to be touched on. but so I start dating you know town meth dealer, and existing in this underworld that really felt comfortable to me because it was it was dark and there was violence and it was anti-establishment, and I was pretty pissed at the establishment at this point, mm-hmm. like I had been the good kid. And mm-hmm. bad things happened to me. And then I reported it and it felt like I was being brutalized. And so every time I did something right, it felt like, you know, it didn't get me anywhere. So mm-hmm. I was sort of like, well, fuck this. Like, you know, I, I was the good girl. That got me nowhere. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be, be the bad girl now. And I'm going to be the best damn bad girl that I can be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I'm dating this guy who had spent, you know, a large chunk of his life in and out of jail, uh, he was notorious in our town. I had known him and his brother, you know, his brother had been my dealer and he had a lot of clout. So I started dating him because I, at that point, had at least figured out that as a woman, the way I was going to gain power was probably not on my own. It was going to have to be attached to a penis somehow. <laughs> so, uh, Which is a no whole another podcast for a different day. But yeah. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so I did. I, I attached myself and I did have power. And at first, you know... When people found out I was his girl, like, guys, the bar rail vodka cranberries flowed. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't exactly living the high life in, you know, LA or Miami or something like this. But in my, in my little town, I got, I got free cigarettes and, and free vodka crans. And I felt <laughs> pretty important. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, looking back, I'm like, oh, wow, you could have at least held out for, you know, Grey Goose or something. But no, it's far yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so when he turned to me and he said hey you know we're doing more drugs than we're selling we need to supplement our income are you going to help me with this to me it was like elevated status it was no longer he's the dealer and I'm just his hang around it was okay we he used we so I get to help with this I get to help in some sort of stings that we were going to do or, or these heists and so at first it really just looked like me distracting people, you know, using the sexuality that I had just learned, I had recently learned, you know, could pay dividends and distracting people while he could steal from them or from a bar or something and then pawning those things. Now, the thing is, that escalated really quickly. And what I know now with human trafficking, and this is where I probably should explain what human trafficking is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I will in a second, but is that it really often there's still there's a grooming process with human trafficking as there is with with assault sexual assault but for me it really took that one kind of co-conspirator criminal act cuz then when he was like hey what if i tried to take something bigger but to do that you're going to have to like pretend like you want to go on a date with this guy and get him to take you back to his house and his room so he's distracted and i can come in and take this and i was like and uh mm. what is it you want me to do while i'm in that room and he was like oh you know and i'm like i do not And I, you know, say, well, I don't want to do that. And it turns around and he goes, well, do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them?
0: Mm.
1: And I remember being like, wait a second. Mm -hmm. What do you mean I've been stealing from them? So I'll give more examples a bit later on. But to jump in with fast forward, I did get away. We can talk about that more. And. I went to school and I I worked in the helping field. So I went to school and I got a bunch of degrees and diplomas and all of this in criminology and victimology. I actually, he came and found me. I finally went to the police. We went through a full police investigation. And the reason I'm sharing all of this is because it wasn't until 10 years after the whole incident with him happened that I found out that what he did to me counted as human trafficking. And that blew my mind because of all the education I had at that point, the full criminal Mm. investigation and court case against him. The word human trafficking never came up. And I had had it in my head that human trafficking was this big thing that happened over there to those people. And it sure shit didn't happen to me, you know, little middle class girl from Oakville, Ontario So that really blew my mind and I think that's where I jumped in and I became so passionate about talking about human trafficking and everything that surrounds that topic because Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, if someone like me with 10 years of education and four degrees in this field, a criminal investigation, a court case, all of this still didn't know she was trafficked, then how the hell is anyone supposed to (laughs) know what trafficking is, much less protect themselves and their loved ones against it? Absolutely. I mean, it's just that,
0: it's just so crazy. I I need you to kind of go into more depth. like So educate us on what, can you tell us what you thought it was and then the
1: definition of what it really is and how you made that connection to what happened to you? Absolutely. So I thought what happened to me was domestic violence and a mm-hmm. series of my own bad decisions. Mm-hmm. And that's really how the police treated it as well. Mm-hmm. Granted, I didn't give them some of the information that would have potentially led to them speaking about trafficking, though in 2007, no one was really. Yeah. At least not, you know, in, in this sort of area. And what he, I'll say what human trafficking is, and then I'll explain how I found out I was trafficked. Mm-hmm. So human trafficking, I'm not going to give you the legal definition because it's got so much legal jargon that I yeah, find it it's like a possible yeah. yeah, But human trafficking overall is what compelling or coercing a person to provide labor or services Or to engage in commercial sex acts. That coercion can be subtle or overt, it can be physical or psychological. So break that down really simply is if someone is compelling or coercing, so forcing someone else to provide labor for them, or in my case and common cases, commercial sexual acts, doesn't necessarily have to be intercourse, but any sort of sexual act. And then that third party profits. So if I'm just out on stage, you know, stripping and I keep all my money, I'm not being trafficked. I'm dancing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a whole conversation in there about whether it's empowering or exploitative in and of itself. Not the conversation right now. But if I'm up on stage, if I'm forced on stage as I was, and when I get down off that stage, I have to hand over all the money I made mm-hmm. to my boyfriend, I'm being trafficked. It's as soon as my body is being used to make someone else money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, I'm being, if I'm over the age of 18, there's force, fraud, or coercion involved. If you're under the age of 18, you simply cannot consent to commercial sex acts. So it is trafficking. Does it always have to include the commercial sex
0: act. Like if you were going and helping him, like you said, you would be a distraction. Like maybe that's just talking with somebody else as the distraction. And then they're stealing, making money, but you don't profit off of it, as, off of it at all. Is that still considered being trafficked? even though there was no actual sex act?
1: I think it depends a little bit. I, that could get into labor trafficking. If, if you know, he's, the, the heist is, you know, you go into all these places and you have to use your labor. You have to talk and distract and, yeah. and all of that. Well, and then he keeps all the profits from that. Right. But keep in mind a commercial sex act is using your body in a sexual manner to get something in return. It does not necessarily mean Oral sex for money or penetrative mm-hmm. sex for money. It can be I'm gonna do, ac- accidentally dump a bunch of water on my shirt and then have to take it off. So I'm standing there topless, wringing out my shirt. That's a set, I'm using my body in a sexual mm-hmm. manner mm-hmm. and he's benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. So that's where this yeah. definition of yeah. human trafficking suddenly gets really broad and people are like, oh, it's not just a brothel in India or mm-hmm. something, right? It's not just a pimp. On the streets of Vegas. It is a boyfriend saying, Hey, we're not going to make our rent this month. I need you to go down and see if you can work out something with the landlord. And what you work out is that they're allowed to take naked pictures of you, or they don't even have to touch you. They can masturbate to you having your shirt off. But then you get like your boyfriend benefits from the fact that you Mm. just got your rent down by a couple hundred bucks or something. Mm -hmm. All of that can count as human trafficking. Okay.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. So how did you originally view it? Like, how did you view your circumstance? So you just viewed it as just like
1: domestic violence. violence. Yeah. Yep. And a series of my own bad decisions because I had said yes to the first thing, right? I -hmm. had said, yeah, I want to do this. And then even when things progressed, I gave the example of of being on stage at a strip club. I didn't agree to that necessarily. I literally was at a strip club one day with him and my feet left the floor and I was deposited up on stage. And the last thing he whispered to me was, don't get down until you've made me some money. Oh, yeah. And that wasn't the first time I was on, or that wasn't the last time I ended up on stage. But I had to convince myself throughout the time, and our relationship didn't last very long. Mind you, like I said, we were doing meth, so we were engaging in a lot more hours of the day and night than many people do. Mm -hmm. But I spent a lot of time in that relationship, convincing myself and anyone who would ask me if they were getting concerned, that I wanted to be there. I wanted to do what I was doing, that him and I were business partners, that I was having fun and I was sexually empowered and anyone else was just, you know, a prude and who Mm -hmm. cares how I use my body? I'm choosing to do this. And that's where things get really confusing because you have a lot of people who work in and around the sex industry who say, this is empowerment. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying this. I make money. I'm having fun. I'm partying, whatever it is. And then once they exit, whether it's five minutes or five years after exiting, they go, oh, I never wanted to do that. But I had, I had to tell myself that. It was the only way to get through every single day. Yeah,
0: I know. And, and you, you talk a lot about the difference between sexual empowerment, and sexual exploitation. So I would love for you to talk about how how do you think society's perception of sexuality and empowerment influence the way that we kind of discuss things like this? Like, how do you think, like, what makes somebody view it when they're doing it as empowerment, but then they get out and they're like, oh my God, that, that was not how it was at all. It was actually exploitation.
1: Good question. I can't speak for how everybody's individual brain works, of course. But I can say, I can speak to that in a couple ways. One, for myself, cognitive dissonance. So that's the idea that my uh, mindset and my actions aren't matching up. So knowing I don't want to be a stripper, knowing I don't want to be engaging in sexual acts that I'm being coerced to do, but... If I register if I really keep thinking that I don't want to be here, then I have to register that I can't actually leave and my boyfriend is violent and I'm trapped. So to relieve the cognitive dissonance, I have to change my mindset because I can't change my physical actions. So then I had to tell myself I wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would be registering that in fact I was trapped. And that's feeling trapped is a is a terrible terrible feeling.
0: Right.
1: Other parts of that which get into a bigger conversation is societal grooming. There is, you know, we teach, especially girls and women from a young age, there's this, you can't get it right. You're either, you know, have to be the innocent and you're supposed to be pure and non-sexual and all of this, but also don't forget to be sexual because that's Mm -hmm. how you like come of age. Look at every single teen pop star who decided they were ready to come of age and they had to come out with like an overtly sexual, music video back Mm -hmm. in the day or something like that to show like i'm a woman now Mm -hmm. what about back in the day we used to have countdowns to pop stars 18th birthdays because that's when they're going to be legal because that's what their value is when they can finally be had sex with legally right right even the very idea of uh virginity goes into that is like somehow you lose something when you choose to have sex I think there is, it's different for everybody. Some people absolutely do find empowerment uh, in their sexuality and that may show up in how they dress or they speak or something like that. And if they feel truly empowered, it's not for me to say they're not. But if the only reason you are engaging in the commercial sex industry is because you are forced into it, that's not empowerment. And I
0: mean, you know, I feel like in just listening to your own story, it makes you wonder, how many of these people maybe not forced but kind of like it wasn't like you said like this light switch you were going to school and and doing all these things with advocacy and then you flipped a switch and you were you know doing drugs and and you know being human trafficked which you didn't even know what was happening it's like this very gradual thing that happens where you know circumstances change and you end up being where you are and you never said no you know it's like you got to wonder how many of these women are in this industry and they were brought into it And there was never like, it wasn't their choice, right? It wasn't like, I think my body is powerful and I want to do this with it. You got to wonder how many of those women woke up one day and and said that, you know, I would, I mean, I don't know. I just, I feel like that's probably not the case, right? Like I just, it seems so crazy.
1: Well, I think in there, I will say that's probably a really good place. You can, we can jump in and talk about grooming because that is how a lot of people get in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I would love for you, let's, can
0: we start off with the definition? Like what is grooming? Like if somebody might be listening to this and be like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, what is it?
1: Grooming is the process by which someone is kind of molded into being abused or trafficked and it's, there's stages of it. And, you know, among experts in the field, sometimes there's four stages, sometimes there's five, sometimes there's slightly different names. But the stages run from identifying the victim, uh, to building trust and filling needs, to isolation, to a point of confusion, and finally to exploitation, or if it's abuse, to mm-hmm. abuse. Mm-hmm. And really, the a good visual someone once gave me is to get someone to do something extreme, like sell their body for sex when that wouldn't necessarily have ever been on their menu of life beforehand. You don't. Like 99.9% of the times, you don't just like snatch someone off the street, say, hey, by the way, take your clothes off. This is going to happen because that that doesn't work. It doesn't pay dividends over and over and over again. That's someone who's going to keep trying to get away. They're not groomed into believing that they want to be there or anything like that. So if you think of the visual of if you put a frog in cold water and slowly turn up the heat, they'll boil to death. Mm-hmm. But if you drop a frog in boiling water, they're going to leap right the hell out of there. And so that's the stages, like the process of grooming is slowly turning up the heat and slowly pushing boundaries and slowly getting someone to do something they probably wouldn't have done before. And then suddenly you're, you know, however far away from what your original boundary was, and you don't even know how you got there. You don't even know how you're agreeing to what you're agreeing to. Because you, if someone had asked you, like, would you ever have sex for money, it would have been like, absolutely not. But Mm -hmm. by the time you get to that point, you're like, well, it wasn't that big of a deal when I was just accidentally pouring water on my shirt and distracting people, right? Mm -hmm. It's all the little stages of getting there. Mm -hmm.
0: This podcast is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I was striving for better gut health and hoping that along with my current exercise routine, it would give me a great energy boost. AG1 is a quick and easy way to get science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food source nutrients on a daily basis. AG1 has the NSF certification. This certification was created for professional athletes and is the gold standard for clean ingredient nutrition. The certification process is exhaustive and involves testing and certification of each ingredient and every finished batch of AG-1. If you want to check out the full ingredient list, you can head over to their website for more details. Perhaps my favorite part about AG-1 is how they evolve with science. They cross-reference decades of established research with new clinical studies and biotechnology to bring you the best formulation possible. They have made 52 iterations of AG-1 to this day and will always strive to be better. I drink AG1 in the morning after my workout with added protein. It's a great way to start the day and gives my body what it needs for fuel. Personally, I love AG1 for the gut optimization. As a busy mom of four, I don't always have time to concentrate on getting everything I need nutritionally, and this helps me stay more balanced. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I've been a partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to ag1.com slash Lindsay. That's L-Y-N-Z-Y. Drink ag1.com slash Lindsay. L-Y-N-Z-Y. Now, can you go into detail about kind of what happened with you? Because I feel like, actually, this is kind of like a broader question that I'd love for you to kind of address all at once. So Is there anything that you think that your parents could have taught you when you were younger that would have made you more aware of what was happening to you when you were 13 or 14 with your uncle? Like, is there anything that they could have taught you that would have made you think twice that maybe, oh shit, like this is not a situation I want to be in. I got to tell my parents or I got to tell somebody that's an adult that would have kind of gotten you out of that situation. because. The way that I'm thinking of it is: is there a way that we can teach our children that this can happen and what to do about it? Because I do think that these types of people that do this uh, to children and adults, where they groom them, they are looking for a specific like personality or person that they know could be an ideal candidate for this, right? Like I feel like, and I might be wrong. Like I'm just in my head, I'm trying to think of like what we can do to kind of feel like we are making a difference in how our our kids are growing up and what we can do to kind of prevent something like this from happening. But I also feel like those people are looking for specific people and they kind of feel them out like, oh, are you okay keeping secrets, right? Like, and if you're taught not to keep secrets, then maybe it's shut down right there. Like, no, my parents told me I can't ever share secrets. And they're like, well, shit, this person's not gonna work. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that that is the truth or do you think there's ways
1: that they can almost manipulate around that? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And that I have two parts to that answer. Okay. So one, to protect children, there's two ways we need to approach this. One is more, I dare say, short-term or more immediate, and one is more long-term, and they do overlap. So one, the more short-term or immediate, you want to protect your kids. Things like teaching them and using the appropriate names for anatomy, Mm -hmm. penis, vulva, you know, rectum, Mm -hmm. all of that, because a predator, if a kid is like, hey, don't touch my penis, a predator is gonna be like, whoa, they have a parent or a caregiver who is very involved in their life. And, and, Mm. you know, they're not quite as vulnerable as I need them to be right with that is talking about consent. And we need to shift that to a yes means yes culture. So it's an opt in, not an opt out. It's Mm -hmm. not things okay until you run screaming no from it it's nothing's okay until you actively and enthusiastically say yes to it. Mm -hmm. And that is with any sort of touch. So that you can teach your kids, you know, very early on, you absolutely do not have to hug grandma and grandpa when they come to visit. Now you do have to be polite to people who come into her home. And that might mean shaking hands or waving or giving a fist bump. But if you are uncomfortable hugging someone or giving them a kiss, you do not have to. And that Mm -hmm. goes for everybody. So they start understanding that that little feeling in their stomach that says, oh, I don't feel good about this. They can trust that. Mm-hmm. And they can come and talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's like a, sorry to kind of, but yeah,
0: that's so important. And I don't think people realize, like I was, I would do this where I'm like, oh, give grandpa a hug, you know, like, and you're like, oh shit. Like, you know, I just think that it's it's sometimes it's those things that we do that we're like not even aware of that we do. And actually we have this sitter um, that she comes like, you know, every couple of weeks when we have a date night or whatever. But she said, I was like, oh my God, this girl knows more than I do as a parent. <laughs> She's not even a parent. She like bent down to my kids and was like, okay, how do you like to say goodbye? Do you like to high five? Do you like to fist bump? Do you like to wave from the window? Or do you like a hug or something else? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like... <laughs> I was like, I love this. This is so amazing. Yeah. So anyways, I just wanted to kind of add that in there because I do think that, you know, so often we, we say that and we're like, oh, like they really want to hug or either, or, you know, the older, you know, older generation kind of expects that. Right. Cause they're like, this is my grandchild. I want to hug or whatever the case may be. And they're like, come on, give me a hug. Give me a hug before I leave. Give me a hug. And I think, you know, teaching our kids that they don't have to do that and kind of just saying like, hey, you know, grandpa, like we don't always have to do that. Like my kid's not comfortable all the time. And so they're going to do this instead or whatever is so important. And we don't realize it is, but it, it, it really is when it comes to consent.
1: It is. And even that example you just gave there of saying like parent or caregiver explaining to grandpa, like we don't do that in our family. You're right there showing your kid that you are going to stand up for them mm-hmm. over the other adult. And kids often feel like it's us versus them, right? Adults stick together. They all seem to agree and it's, you know, whatever. So you're saying like, no, your bodily autonomy means more to me than anything. So yes, I will stand up for you to grandpa. If you don't feel comfortable hugging him, you do not have to. Right. And kids want to
0: please, right? So they're like, oh, well, if it's another adult, I need to do this because they're the adult and I'm the kid, which- is so not like you have just as much power as the adult has, right? Like, and that's what you want to teach your kids. You have power over, especially over your body. And no adult has that type of power over you ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So with that, other things, like you said, don't, we don't keep secrets in our family. No adult should ever ask a kid to keep a secret. We can have surprises, and surprises, you know, are shared by the end of the day or the end of the week or whatever you want to say. But Mm -hmm. we don't ever keep secrets. So any adult that asks you to keep a secret is not doing something right. You can tell me, you can tell, you know, daddy or nanny or babysitter or whoever, but you know, nobody should be asking you to keep secrets. Mm -hmm. And the other part to the answer there is we also need to, as a society, start thinking a little bit more long term than just how do i protect my child so he goes he i hate i use he because typically sexual predators are men but i sorry to gender it like they can mm-hmm. be women as well absolutely mm-hmm. but we we need to move away from the how do i protect my child so they go find someone else to the how do we understand consent and bodily autonomy so thoroughly that we are able to lower the number of sexual predators mm-hmm. now I will say that opens up a whole can of worms about, you know, is it or is someone born bad? Are they made that way or whatever? But that's not what I want to talk about. It's more when, you know, we start, it's the Brock turners of the world who don't understand no, don't understand Mm -hmm. that someone who is unconscious is not able to consent. Mm -hmm. It's teaching our kids, especially as they mature and are going to start seeking you know, intimate peer relationships is it's not no means no, it's yes means yes. But we also need to discuss how our bodies say yes or no without our mouths ever speaking it. Mm-hmm. So if you are kissing someone and they are frozen like a statue, their body is saying no, right? Mm-hmm. You ha- and, or if someone goes to kiss you and you're kissing them back, but your stomach is like very uncomfortable with this feeling, your body is telling you no. And it needs to stop just being the one-sided conversation of how do we stop people from being assaulted and start being a two-sided conversation of both how do we stop people from being assaulted, but also how do we teach, stop people from becoming predators? Because again, Mm -hmm. it's that same thing. It's little bits. A lot of the time, there are obviously anomalies and, and, and outliers and extremes, but if we can start teaching consent from both directions, right? Not just how to give it, but also how to receive it mm-hmm. and how to look for it. I think you have a lot more power in creating long-term change.
0: Now, how do you see that how do you see that happening like within our society? How would you suggest to kind of introduce that as like would you like for example, would you try to put it into like sexual
1: education? How would you uh, yeah, so sexual education, as well as just conversations changing the way we have conversations. So think about all of the all or most of the rom coms we watched growing up or the, you know, teen flicks and all of this. It's this idea that more often than not, the guy tries, you know, asks the girl out or whatever it is. And how often does she say no, or there's a no for however it's explained. And then he has to try harder and push and try and push and try. And finally, at the end, she says yes, and it's romantic because he finally wore her mm. down. That's not consent. Like, I was having conversation with a friend's teenage son a while back, and they came home and they were like, oh, like, I asked the girl out to the dance or for a date. I don't even know. Um, and she said, no, and he's all upset. And dad's like, well, you know what you have to do now, son? And he's like, yeah, try harder. And I was like, no, Mm. no, 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 (laughs) no, no, you drop that shit. (laughs) No, you respect her. No. And both dad and son looked at me like what? And I'm like, no, 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 hold on. Let's have a conversation about this. You asked her out. She said, no, that's the end of that conversation. Right. Well, what if she's playing hard to get, you are playing hard to get rid of son. like. I I don't know how else to tell you that. If she was playing hard to get, then it's now on her. You've put the ball in her court to come and ask you out. That levels the playing field as well. But no, if you asked her out and she said no, you have the information. Don't try and find other things that don't, if you don't like the answer. How many, you, mm. for all parents out there, your kid asks you a question. Can I have an ice cream cone? No. It's five minutes till dinner. Oh, well, can I have just a, like half of it now? No. Well, what if what if can I have it immediately after dinner? I don't know. Maybe like you're just annoying me now, right? right? But I gave you asked me a question. I gave you an answer. Right. The amount more times you ask me, I'm getting annoyed, and you might actually wear me down. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I'm not going to be annoyed watching you eat this ice cream cone now that you wore mm-hmm. me down because I couldn't handle you bugging me or whatever the example is. So we need to start treating people's answers as. What they mean, and if they don't mean that, then it's a lesson for them to start saying what they mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think the media is just so much a huge part in all of
0: this. I mean, even like throughout history, just it's such a huge influence in people's lives, whether it be like a TV show or a movie, or in in our case now, we have. <laughs> I feel like it's amplified times a billion because of social media and just having constant access. And I feel like the grooming situation can get. Even worse in that regard, because now you can have these these predators online that can be grooming your kid through a video game, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah. like what? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? On on just like all the the digital stuff that we have to deal with, and like how to navigate all of that. I mean, I feel like you could be the most strict person, kind of making all these rules. And, you know, your kid could still end up somehow coming in contact with some gross predator online and being groomed. Like, right? I mean, it's just just like so many different ways to do it nowadays, right? It's not like you have to have that, you know, relationship with somebody in your family. I think it's, you know, one of two things. It's somebody really close in your family or your friend's circle, right, that that decides to try to groom you. Or it's like an online situation where… I don't know, you hear of these stories of, you know, this kid was in playing video games every single day and had this person that was like playing with them and was slowly grooming them, which of course that person had no idea that was happening. And then Mm -hmm. was like, oh, you know, like let's meet and play or whatever the case may be. It's terrifying, honestly. It's like, what the hell, what are we supposed to do here?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. So with that, I would say to your one comment, you can be the most strict parent. Being the most strict parent isn't, um... In my opinion, the best way to go about it. Because if mm-hmm. you're strict, you are holding all the tools in your own tool belt and you're controlling and how I never have to use them. Wielded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not teaching your kid or giving them the tools on, you know, age appropriate and whatever on how, how to deal with things. Mm-hmm. So, yes, uh, the online world provides a whole new dynamic because someone, it's still the idea that your kid is most likely going to be if they get abused by someone they meet online, it's still someone they know, love and trust at that point, because that person, like you said, has developed a relationship with them. So the best way to protect against that is to, first of all, when your kid first starts using a cell phone, I'm not going to give you an age, this is the magic age, they can, you know, have Mm -hmm. online access, because it depends entirely on you and your child and their maturity and your availability and all of that. But I don't suggest just being like, well, you're 13 now. Here's the phone. Good luck. Mm-hmm. I often use an analogy, you know, when you're teaching your kid how to cross a street, you know, you don't just, when they're two years old, be like, good luck and send them, you know, <laughs> running across the street. You are holding them when they're a baby first, right? And anytime you, you have to cross the street, they're in your arms. And then they're, no, me do, which is the age where my daughter's at now. Yeah, mm-hmm. You do. Okay. Well, you can walk, but you're holding on to mommy's hand. And if you're not going to hold my hand, by God, I have clasped around your wrist, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you don't have the maturity or the understanding yet to understand the dangers out there. So I can't just trust that you're going to walk next to me. Mm-hmm. Now my four-year-old, I trust he's going to walk, walk next to me. So I may not have to hold his hand, but he knows he has to stay within, you know, reaching distance of me. It's the same thing with online. So you don't just say like, oh, here you go, figure it out. It's here's your device. I only have the capacity to learn how to use three apps. So you are allowed to choose three apps to have on your device. And if you decide there's a new one you want, then guess what? You're deleting one. And I don't care if all of your friends have 12 apps. You have three. And at first, you are going to leave your phone, I always recommend, especially for the first several years, frankly, is no phones in bedrooms and bathrooms. We know that's where most exploitative and inappropriate photos are taken. Mm -hmm. Phones stay in public areas overnight. They charge in the kitchen, for example. And you, because you don't want to break trust with your kid, you very openly share with them, guess what? This device is new. These are the risks. Um, When you go to bed, I will be going through your device. I will have all the passwords to all of your whatever you use. And I'll go through your DMs. And if there's anything in there that I see that makes me uncomfortable, we're going to talk about it. And as you build trust with me, as you come to me, if you get a weird message, or, you know, I see that you're using things appropriately, and you're not trying to hide stuff, then maybe that will change. Maybe I'll only go through it with you, not when you're sleeping. Maybe However that looks like for you, but it's incremental and it's in stages. And if trust is broken, then you dial it back. You go back mm-hmm. to holding their hand while they walk past the, uh, walk across the street. And that is one of the things I think there's not, yes, there are apps you can put on your phone or your kid's phone that, you know, search for certain keywords and all of that. But guess what? Predators know all of those. Right. And they know how to get around that right. with emojis or with slang. Mm-hmm. The best app to keep your kids safest is you is for your involvement with whatever they're doing on their phone. And it is I don't I don't like fear tactics because I don't think scaring people into being careful is a good idea because people can only be scared for so long and eventually they drop that. Mm. But it's just understanding. The internet is great. It does provide connection. It's wonderful in so many ways. There are also risks. There are predators, and you need to provide your kid With tools. So that's going to be anything from if someone shows too much interest in you, that's a red flag. If someone asks you to switch apps that you're on Roblox and they're like, hey, I'm not on Roblox that much anymore. You know, you want to switch to Snap. Like they've already made a relationship with your kids. So your kid's like, yeah, sure. I use Snap. Like no big Mm -hmm. deal. Well, guess what? If you don't turn up your Snap on ghost mode, then your location is visible instantly. So there's so many different, like there's little things, so many little things you can do and none of them are perfect. None of them are fail safe, but the more tools you employ and the more tools you give your kids, the safer they can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally
0: agree. I mean, it's just like a constant conversation and constant involvement um, because the second that you kind of let your guard down, that's, that's when it, that's when it all goes to shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And not just with not just with social media and phones. I mean, it's just anything. I mean, being a parent is freaking hard. It's a lot of work. It's a 24-7 on all the time job. And most adults can't handle their phone either. So <laughs> it's like trying to teach them safe practices and time restraints and things like that with their phone. It's it's all part of the learning process, but it's it's tough even for us sometimes, you know, with our own devices. Yeah. Okay, so let's kind of wind it up because it's almost one o'clock. So I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you didn't get to touch on? Because I know we had so many other things we wanted to discuss and we didn't get to it, but is there anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't talk about?
1: I will, I do want to mention, you know, anytime I share whatever situation I'm in, you know, people ask like, oh, what do you do for work? And I'm like, oh, I work in, in the anti-human trafficking field. Usually the first thought is like, oh, I'm about to ruin your day. Because um, as soon as I bring up human trafficking, people are like, wait, what? Yeah. And it's a heavy topic, right? So they're like, oh, shit, I got to go. Yeah. Or they're like, let me ask you all these questions. And I answer them. And then you can just see their like worldview is shattered. Yeah. And they're like, I need mm-hmm. to sit down. I'm like, i told you. <laughs> um, but is a lot of the reaction I get is, oh, my goodness, I have daughters. I need to learn about this. Mm -hmm. And true, for sure. But I I invite everyone out there to start shifting that conversation and acknowledging that this is not just a conversation for girls and women. Mm -hmm. This is a conversation for everybody. And for two reasons. One, boys can be trafficked too. Boys can be assaulted too. But more so, when we're talking about human trafficking, whether we like it or not, The trafficking triangle, so victim, I'm talking to say three players. One is the victim, one is the trafficker, and one is the buyer, the person purchasing commercial sex. And two of those three are typically male, not all the time, but typically. So when we're talking about human trafficking, we can't leave two of the three players out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. We have to be talking to our boys about what consent looks like and what it doesn't look like. And if someone, if your date says yes, but they're, you know, frozen and stiff and all of this, then they're saying no with their body. Mm -hmm. And that ordering someone to your room like DoorDash, that's not really cool, right? Celebrating the birth of your daughter at a strip club, which, you know, I've seen so many times, that's really messed up. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Celebrating your marriage, you know, you're making marriage at a strip club. Like, we have to understand that all of us, I guarantee, I dare say, every single one of your listeners has been a consumer of commercial sex. Mm -hmm. If you've ever attended a strip club, if you've ever watched porn, if you have ever flipped through a skin mag, like whether it was yours or you found your parents because they suck at hiding things, like whatever (laughs) it was, you have consumed commercial sex. And therefore, we are all part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So if we want to get to a place where we truly believe that there is such a thing as sexual empowerment involving commercial sex, that is so far down the road because right now we know it is something that preys on vulnerable populations. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is help people who are vulnerable, A, with their vulnerabilities, so marginalized populations, people who live in poverty, people who can't access post-secondary education, kids who have parents who are not necessarily super present, all of that, we need to address that. But then we also need to address what turns people into buyers and predators Mm -hmm. and start having those conversations because we can't just keep pulling victims out of the water, right? We have to start figuring out why the hell they keep falling in and who the hell's dragging them in or keeping them in there. Right. That conversation needs to involve absolutely everybody. And yeah. that's how we have this conversation from a place of empowerment instead of a place of, oh my God, be terrified of everyone, everything all the time.
0: Well, and that's how you get people to just go along with you know, the standard issue is to, to instill fear, right? Like that's always been part of how people have gotten what they want is just make them fearful and they won't question it. They won't try to change it. So yeah, I think- you know, even just having this conversation, right, is so important because it's okay. If however many people are listening to this and they're like, oh, shoot, like I have work to do with my own kids and including my son, right? I'm going to raise yeah. him to say, like, hey, listen, like you're going on that date tonight. Okay, here's a couple pointers. She might not want to kiss you if, you know, or maybe you are and, you know, you notice this. That means you need to stop. Or you maybe you need to stop and say, hey, are you okay with this? Are you just scared? Just having a conversation about it. Yes. And yes. yeah, yeah, I totally I love that. Okay. So two questions for you, not based on what you're, what we talked about today. The first question is, if you had one piece of advice for mothers, what would it be?
1: You're doing a great job. It's not advice. It's just you're doing a great job. You're doing a good job, you, period. You're not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's your good job looks different from your best friend's look, good job, looks different from your mom's good job, looks different from Pinterest's good job. And you can send your kid to school with sandwiches that don't look like little animals, and you're still a good mom. Yes. Absolutely. You're just, you're doing a good job.
0: Yes. All right. And the second question is, if you could make one meal for your family that everyone would eat that's relatively quick and easy, what would it be?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. My son eats everything. My daughter is like, she has emotional support bread she carries around with her. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't we all.
0: But, um, you could even say, so, I mean, you could even say like, we go to McDonald's and we order pizza. Like that's.
1: Uh, totally yeah, no, we live in a rural area, so I can't even order food. <laughs> I I um, it would be noodles. It would absolutely be noodles of some kind that they can slurp yes. and make a huge mess yes. of because yeah. then they forget that they're eating. They just think they're making a mess. So yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it.
0: Anyways, I am just, I'm like so, I just loved talking to you. I think that you sharing your story, first of all, takes so much strength and to be vulnerable like that, but it's seriously going to make change. So, thank you for sharing your story with us and for other people and making this part of what you do every day. I really
1: appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for using your platform to talk about a subject that I think most people would rather you know, leave to law and order SVU on Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) I Appreciate you and and you taking the time and and creating the space for the conversation. Absolutely. Loved it.
0: Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to motherhood meets medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old.